Hi guys, uh, Pastor Greg Corcoran here from Battlefield Baptist Church. Uh, pray that this sermon is a blessing, an encouragement, and a challenge to you in your walk with the Lord. Additionally, I just wanted to say that if we here at Battlefield can ever be a blessing to you, please don't hesitate to contact us. And the best way to do that is through our website at battlefieldbaptist.org. Again, I pray this sermon blesses you, encourages you, and uh, that you'll fall more in love with God, more in love with his word, and more in love with people. We'll find our text for this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. For we commend not ourselves unto you again, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is to your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who, recon, who, um, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, amen, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Father God, I pray that you would just be with us this morning. Father, sit me down. You stand up and speak through me. God, I pray that you would supernaturally block out anything from our mind that might distract us from you. May the seed of your word fall upon the good soil of our hearts this morning. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, can I just be candid with you real quick this morning? Like, it's just us. They didn't come. It's just us here. Um, what we're about to start doing, like, next Wednesday, what's, what's going to take place is the most important thing that we're going to do here at Battlefield for the next 365 days until we do it again Right, the next year after that. 
Like, listen, meeting together is important. Coming together and worship is important. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. These things are important. I'm not saying they're not important. They are important. But listen, we have been given a mandate, a commission, a command to engage and persuade those outside of these walls with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? That is our commission, as it were. It's often what is referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus himself put it this way in Matthew 28. Um, beginning in verse 19, he said, uh, and mind you, he is risen from the dead. This is right before he ascends back into heaven. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Right? And for the Christian, any inquiry, right, any questioning as to why God has left you here on this earth when you could be in heaven enjoying the splendors and the richness of his, his mercy, his glory, everything that heaven has to offer, any inquiry as to why you're still here should ultimately come right back here to this passage. If it doesn't, can I just tell you, I'll just be real with you, just, just us, you left the word of God out of your search. Right? God, why am I still here? Why do I have to go through these things? I could be in heaven. It's going to be so much better because you've been given a command. Right? You've been given. This is ultimately why we're all still here. Warren Wearsby said it this way, um, what we believe and how we behave must always go together. Right? And that's why missions is so important, right? It's the culmination of sound doctrine and proper application. Duty and doctrine are attached at the hip because what God has done for us must motivate us to do something for God. Yeah, we're going to have, like, guest missionaries in. And yes, we want to be here to support them, to rally behind them. We want to encourage them, uplift them, so they can leave this place. They can return to their field that God has called them to. They can be refreshed, rejuvenated, to continue preaching and teaching the Word of God. Like, that is very important. But what's even more than that, on the very last day of our missions revival, we're going to take up what we call um, Faith Promise Missions. Right, right. We're going to pledge what we're, we're going to decide we're going to give to God specifically for missions. It's how we decide um, what we're going to be able to, to do for our missionaries, um, what projects we're going to be able to be involved in as a whole. <clears throat> it is where doctrine and duty meet. So I just want to encourage you, stop at nothing, nothing, nothing to be here every single day that you can next week. From Wednesday all the way to Sunday. Stop at nothing. I got a job. Quit your job. No, don't, do, don't do that. But listen, stop at nothing to be here. It's where duty and doctrine meet. Listen, our text for this morning defines our personal ministry of reconciliation. Right? And involves the, the word or the message of reconciliation. Thereby, we are functioning as ambassadors for Christ to whom God is conveying, right? He has conveyed and is still conveying um, his message to the world. It is essentially a broader sense of the Great Commission. And in our passage for this morning, listen, evidently it doesn't state it, but evidently some people had been questioning Paul's motives for ministry. And so in our passage this morning... He provides us with three acceptable motives for our personal ministry of reconciliation. They'll serve as our three points. And the first one is this, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord ought to motivate us inside of our personal ministry of reconciliation. He says this in verse 9. 
He says, wherefore we labor, that whether we're present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that one may receive of the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust that we are also made manifest in your conscience. Right? It was Paul's, Paul's knowledge of the coming judgment Right, that, that preceded like, like this attitude of reverence. But remember, Paul's a smart guy. He gives us his credentials in, in Philippians. He, he was a Pharisee, right? But even before his conversion, like, like Paul knew the scriptures. So it's no doubt that he was familiar with what Solomon wrote at the end of Ecclesiastes. And if you're familiar with that book, so, Solomon's pondering, what is the point of all this? What's the whole point of life in general? Everything from wisdom to pleasure to work. He says, what is it all for? And at the very end, his conclusion, he says this, like, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Right? The whole point, fear God, keep his command, for this is the whole duty of, of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it be evil. In fact, Jesus himself taught of this coming judgment. He says in, in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 36, he says, But I say unto you that every idle word that man shall speak, he shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Listen, Paul is keenly, keenly aware of what's to come. Right? He's keenly aware, and that's why he wrote to the Romans, beginning uh, in chapter 14, beginning in verse 10. He says, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or dost thou set it not against thy brother? For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, thus saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Listen, Paul knew that one day we're all going to stand before God. And we're all going to have to answer for, for what we've said, what we've done. Right, the things that we haven't said or haven't done. And this been, begins to produce this healthy fear, this, this reverence of the Lord. And listen, this is the kind of attitude that's often absent of our worship place. Just not necessarily ours in general, but, but I'm just talking about in the broader sense. This attitude of reverence, of respect, fear, and awe of the Lord is lacking in our ministries, right? There's this, there's this absence of it during our public worship time. And it's no wonder that like the, the following generations um, really are not taking the things of God seriously. A healthy fear of the Lord produces a holy ambition. Look back at verse 9. Wherefore we labor... That whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. We labor. That's to say we are ambitious. Listen, there's an ambition that is worldly, that's selfish, and there is also a holy ambition that honors God. There was some in Paul's day, and there's still some in our day, right, that minister to please and enlist others in the cause. They're just trying to please men. They want to be seen of men. They want to be glorified by men. Paul ministered to please Jesus Christ and him alone. That's why he stated in Galatians chapter 1. He says, for, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, um, I should not be the servant of Jesus Christ. So now look back in our passage in verse 9. 
right? Paul says we labor or we have this holy ambition to be accepted or to be well-pleasing unto the Lord. And when we look throughout the New Testament, we find other instances of things that are pleasing to the Lord, right? When we, when we focus in on this language that he's using here, right? So we know that um, it's well-pleasing to the Lord um, when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Romans 12 tells us that. Romans 14 um, tells us it's well-pleasing to the Lord when we live to help others and also avoid causing them to stumble. Ephesians 5 tells us um, that God is pleased when his children separate themselves from the evil that's around them. Philippians 4 states that he's well-pleased when we bring our offering unto him. Colossians 3 tells us he's well-pleased when children submit themselves unto the parents. Praise God. I have a two-year-old. <laughs> Hebrews 13 tells us that he's well-pleased when saints permit Jesus Christ to work out his perfect will in their lives. And according to Paul in our passage here this morning, it's well-pleasing to God when we are ambitious concerning the, our personal ministry of reconciliation. There's nothing wrong with a godly ambition that's produced by this earnest desire to be found acceptable inside into the sight of the Lord. Right, knowing that one day we're all going to have to stand and give an account for everything that we have or, or have not said. Verse 10 says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive of the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Listen, a healthy fear of the Lord produces a holy ambition because we all got to appear. Right, we, we all um, must appear. Not every um, believer is ambitious for the Lord. That's just sad truth. What do they say, uh, 10% do 90% of the work? Oh, well, the church down the road has 100 volunteers. Yeah, they probably run 1,000 people. 10%, 90. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to tell you. Listen, not every believer is ambitious for the Lord, but every believer will appear. That's just the truth. Every believer um, will appear before the Lord. The judgment seat of, the Christ, uh, of Christ is a future event when God's people are going to stand before the Savior as their works are, are judged and also rewarded. Right? So Paul's ambitious uh, for the Lord because he wants to meet him with confidence and not shame. I just ask, what about you? Right? The, the term um, judgment seat comes from the Greek word bima, which is a platform in Greek towns where speeches were made. Right? They would get up on the bima. They would make these speeches, um, these proclamations or decisions are handed down uh, from the rulers. It was also the place where the awards were given out to the winners of the annual Olympic Games. Right? The judgment seat is not to be confused with the great white throne judgment. Right? That is the judgment where Christ will judge the wicked. Praise God, because of Christ, because of his gracious and redemptive work on the cross, believers are not going to have to face the wrath of God that is rightfully due to us because of our sins. Right? Praise God for his work on the cross. Jesus um, already did that for us. But we will have to give an account for our works and our service for the Lord. The Bema seat will be a place of revelation. Right? In verse 10, when Paul says, all must appear, the word appear means to be revealed. Listen, as, as we live and, and we work here, we serve, it's relatively easy to, to fool somebody. Listen, man, this, we put on show all the time. We know the words to say. We, we know the, the smile to put on. We know the place to go. Listen, it's easy to trick people, man. It's easy to fool somebody, put on a smile, come in, um, you know, act like, do, say all the right things, do all the right things. 
at the Bema seat, the character of our, of our works will be exposed before the eyes of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul wrote that every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is, Right, he will reveal whether or not these works have been good or bad or even worthless. And not only will the character of our works be revealed, but also the motives behind these works. Right, what compelled our service? Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in the next verse, in verse 14, he says, If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, um, he shall receive a reward. He says in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. So listen, not only is this judgment seat going to be a place of revelation, revealing whether our works are good or bad, but it's also going to be a place of reckoning. Right, where we're going to have to give account of our ministries, and if we've been found faithful, it will be a place of reward and recognition. We just pause and ask you to consider a question. I don't need an answer. I just want you to ponder it. If God judges his own people, then what will happen to the lost? Peter also pondered a similar question when he asked in 1 Peter chapter 4. Right, he said, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Um, back to our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 11. It says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Pause. And Pastor Greg always says, when we see it, therefore, we should stop and ask ourselves, like, what is it? What is it therefore? That's right. Like, why is this therefore, therefore? Uh, so we got to stop and ask. For Paul, it's where he begins to move from ex uh, explanation to application. Um, it's, it's the, here's what you must do based upon what I just said. Right, so because of verse 10, because we know that we're all going to stand before the Lord one day, which is a terrifying thought, therefore, he says, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that we uh, may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is to your cause. So for Paul, the fear of the Lord produced this holy ambition, so much so that when people on the outside were looking in at him, they begin to question, is he even like in there? Is he even sane? Remember what Festus told him? He said, much learning has made you mad, right? They were questioning whether he was insane or not. But he had this holy ambition. And knowing that one day we all must appear before the Lord, he says, they persuaded men to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do um, want to draw your attention for a second back to um, verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I think that sometimes when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to like our our personal ministry of reconciliation. What are you doing in terms of reconciling people to God when it comes to evangelism, presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people? 
I think that many times the furthest we're willing to go is an attempt to persuade God. Right, Peter wrote this in 2 Peter um, chapter 3. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward usward. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says this is good and acceptable, right, that we're praying for all the leaders because our work is important. And it's important that we're praying for them so they don't disrupt the work of the ministry, right? It's good and acceptable. Verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Listen, it's God's desire that men and women and children and you know, boys and girls alike come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's not the one who needs to be convinced. You understand? He's not the one that we need to convince. Yet often the only thing that we're willing to do for those people who are lost is to pray to God on their behalf. And I'm not saying that praying to them, right? God, please open up the heart, right? Like let them see the truth. I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. We ought to do that. But you ought to follow up that prayer with a discussion about Jesus Christ. Yet all we're willing to do is to try to plead or persuade God on their behalf when we ought to be, as Paul was doing, persuading men. He already knows that we need him. That's why he sent his son in the first place. It's the person that needs to be persuaded, yet the person is often the last one that we're willing to talk to about their need for him. Well, Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So the fear of the Lord was the first of three motives that Paul mentions for ministry. The second is this, the love of Christ. Look at verse 14. It says, for the love of Christ constraineth us, Maybe your version says compels us or it drives us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead and that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. How is it possible for such emotions as fear and love to, to kind of dwell together inside of the same heart and the same mind? Certainly we, we find this inside the hearts of children. Right, who, who love their parents, yet they respect them and their authority. The psalmist, he seemed to understand this when he wrote in Psalm chapter 2, um, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Right, And so the phrase that's found in verse 14 of our passage, the love of Christ, this refers to his love as seen through his death. Right, John wrote in 1 John um, 4, 19, that we love him because he first loved us. Right, listen, he loved us when we were unlovely. In fact, he loved us when we were ungodly, right? When we were at war, at enemy, or at enmity with him, right? That's why Paul um, told the Romans in chapter 5. He said, for, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will die for one, and peradventure yet a good man would even dare to die. But God commended his love. He proved it towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved um, from wrath through him. For if when we were um, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled when uh, shall we shall be saved by his life. When Jesus died on the cross... 
he, he proved his love for the church. He proved his love for the world. He proved his love for the, the individual sinner, right? And when you consider the reasons that Christ died, we shouldn't be able but to help but love him. Verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, right? In his love for us, he died so that we might die, right? Paul explains this truth in detail in Romans 6, right? When he discusses the believer's identification with Christ, but perhaps he summarizes it in Galatians 2, verse 20, when he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. When Christ died, we died in him. Therefore, our old life, our old struggles, our past ought to no longer have a hold on us. Back to our passage, verse 15. And that he died for all, that they which live um, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth we know, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet know we henceforth him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are come new. Yes, he died so that we might die, but he also died so that we might live. You understand, like this is the positive aspect of our identification with Christ. Not only did, did he die um, so that like we died to our old selves, but in him we're also raised so that we might now walk in the newness of life, right? And this is our experience inside of salvation. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 9, it says, um, In this was manifested the love of God towards us because that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Because we have died with Christ, we can overcome sin. But also because we now um, live in Christ, we are free to bear fruit. So the first motive that Paul gives us for missions, for our personal ministry of reconciliation, is the fear of the Lord. The, the second that he stated was the love of Christ. And the third is this. It's the commission of Christ. Verse 18. It says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, who hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And he hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made um, the righteousness of God in him. And listen, the whole key to this passage is the word reconciliation, right? Because of our rebellion, man was the enemy of God and thus out of fellowship with God. Through the work of the cross, Jesus has brought man and God back together again. Right? Listen, the basic meaning of the word reconcile um, just, just means to like change thoroughly. And in this instance, it refers to a changed relationship between God and the lost world. Right? Listen, religion is man's feeble attempt to reconcile themselves to God. Yeah. Efforts that are destined to fail. Yeah. Right. Every time. The person who reconciles us to God is Jesus Christ. And the place where he reconciled us is the cross. 
right? Reconciliation is based on imputation, uh, imputation right? This word is just borrowed from the banking industry, right? It literally just means to, to put to one's account. When you deposit money, you give it to the bank, to the clerk, they take that money and then they put it um, to your credit or to your account. When Jesus died on the cross, our sins were imputed to him, right? Like he was treated by God as if he had actually committed those sins. And as a result, like those sins have been paid for, put to his credit, put to his account. But not only that, what's even more is God has put to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in verse 21 of our passage, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So how does this inspire, how does this doctrine of, of reconciliation, right, motivate or inspire us um, or call us to mission? Look back um, at our passage in verse 18. It says, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled unto God. Listen, we are ambassadors with a message. Right? Like God has commissioned us for the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors. Um, and, and this time, right, in the Roman Empire, there was two kinds of provinces. Um, there was a senatorial province and an imperial province. Right? The senatorial provinces, well, they were made up of people who were peaceful for the most part. They were not at war with Rome. They were surrendered and submitted, if you will. They didn't really have to worry about them. But the imperial provinces were not peaceful. Right? They were considered dangerous because if they could, at any chance, they would rise up in rebellion against Rome. Therefore, it was necessary for Rome to send ambassadors to the imperial provinces to make sure that rebellion didn't break out, to make sure that the interests of Rome were being carried out. Christians in this world, we are ambassadors of Christ because the world is at rebellion with God. Right, the world is an imperial providence as far as God is concerned. He has sent his ambassadors, us, to declare his message of peace, not war. At the cross, he declared peace. One day, he will declare war, and then it will be too late for those who have um, refused the gospel. The word reasonable, um, it means having sound judgment, fair or sensible, um, based on good sense, able to think, understand, or form judgments by a logical process. Paul stated that it was reasonable for us as ambassadors for Christ to be wholly committed to the ministry of reconciliation while we were here on this earth. He didn't say it was illogical or, or any of those other things, like the things that we tend to think, God, how can I show up? How can I tell somebody about Christ? It might be offensive. It's not logical. It's not reasonable um, for me to just like maybe risk this relationship or whatever it may be. It's not, it's not even logical for, for me to um, get off work at like 540 and then rush to be here at service 
it's seven, you know, I know it's the starting of our mission revival, but that's, that's not very um, logical or even reasonable. But Paul says, no, no, it is um, reasonable. Right? And this is actually what he said in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is holy. It's acceptable to God, and it is your reasonable service. The word reliable this means consistently good in quality or performance, able to be trusted. Right, a person or thing with trustworthy qualities. Our God is reliable. Amen. Right, listen, he's not commissioned us as ambassadors of the ministry of reconciliation to merely just like let us have at it and fail. No, when God, right, when we got the great commission from Jesus, we read it at the beginning of the passage, at the very end he says, lo, I will be with you always. He is reliable. Paul wrote to the, the church in Thessalonica. He says, um, faithful is he that calleth you and also will do it. Uh, he says in his second letter to them, but the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. God is reliable. The word resilient, it's able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions able to recoil or spring back into shape after bending, stretching, or being compressed. And while we don't really find the word resilient in the King James Version of the Bible, um, it's often, like, the principle of it is often relayed to the audience um, using the word strong. Right? Often resiliency is exactly what the Bible is talking about um, when it says, be ye strong. You know you can't command somebody to be strong. I tell myself all the time down at the gym, just be strong, pick it up. Ooh, it just doesn't work, dude. It's just not, you can't command to be strong. We're talking about resiliency. Right? Paul uses the same language to relay the idea of being resilient. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 16, verses uh, 13, he says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men. Be strong. Be resilient. He told Timothy, um, Thou therefore, my son, be strong. Be resilient in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He told the Ephesians, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Be resilient in the power of his might. Listen, no matter what life throws our way, whether you're being um, bent, twisted, stretched out of shape, maybe you're stretched thin, maybe you're being compressed, you feel like the walls are closing in around you because of everything that you have going on. Listen, we still have a job to do. We've been commissioned by the king to be his ambassadors to the lost and dying world that stands in rebellion against him, right? We are his ministers of his message of reconciliation, knowing that one day we shall all stand before him as our performance as ambassadors is being judged. We ought to be resilient. No matter what life throws our way, we ought to be quick to recover to get back on the job, letting his love compel us in all that we do. Truly, um, we ought to be driven by love. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, right? You, you've never trusted him to be your savior. Um, can, I just, can I just, as simple as I can say, the Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. I pray that you would do just that.
I pray that you would do just that this morning. If I could just have all heads bow. Um, and Christians, if you could just be praying as we're getting ready, just head into just a brief moment of reflection upon God's word. Um, if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith and your trust in, in Jesus or you're watching online and you've not entered into a relationship with him, um, the Bible says just call upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. I believe you don't have to worry about the right words to say. Right? I believe if you call out upon him in sincerity with a sincere heart that he will be faithful and just to forgive. But maybe you're here and you say, Travis, listen, I've never prayed. I'm, I, I have no idea where to even begin. You could just pray a real simple prayer right to yourself. It could go something like this. Um, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. And God, listen, I don't understand it all, God. I don't know it all. But God, the best way that I know how, I ask you to come in and be Lord and Savior of my life. God, forgive me of my sins. God, help me to live a life now for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Now, real quick, I'm going to pray. After we pray, I invite you just to stand to your feet as we're going to have a moment where we're just reflecting on God's word. If you need to come and pray um, after that, you need to come to the altar, handle some business um, before we get down to business at missions next week. I invite you to do just that. Please um, come. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this opportunity we've had um, just to be here to worship you. God, to be in your word. We can do all these things without the fear of persecution. God, thank you for this opportunity we've had um, to meet together this morning. God, I pray that over these next um, few moments, you would help us. Help us to take a little self-inventory. How are we doing on our own personal ministries of reconciliation? Help us to just be real with ourselves. Have we been good ambassadors for you? God, help us over these next few moments just to be real. Meet with us. Work on us as you see fit. God, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.